Hello and welcome to Unchanging Principles. I am your host, Josh Carter, and I'm President Carter's grandson. Now, I did not mean to be away from the microphone for this long. I did not intend on starting a podcast and then immediately dropping it for a couple of months. But some things just did not go according to plan. And I think that is the official slogan of 2020. Now, even though the pandemic is still raging, the world is a much different place since my last episode. And in the world of politics, of course, we elected a new president and a new vice president. And we saw those results rejected by the sitting president of the United States. Now, Donald Trump's tactics were widely reported, including his phone call to Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, a Trump-supporting Republican, where Trump pressured him repeatedly for an hour to recount the Georgia vote totals until he won. And all of Trump's claims of voter fraud in Georgia were rejected by every one of our election officials, very forcefully, including Brad Raffensperger, who were honorably and thankfully more loyal to our nation's democracy than they were to Donald Trump. And the Carter Center actually helped the state of Georgia oversee the Georgia election recount. Now, the Carter Center has monitored over 110 elections in Africa and Latin America and Asia. And, you know, the Carter Center is how I know my grandparents work. It's their life's work. And I wasn't born yet when my grandfather was in the White House. And I was a toddler during the groundbreaking ceremony at the Carter Center. So in a large sense, to me, the programs that my grandparents have, have at the Carter Center have always been the center of who they are. You know, the Carter Center has been working on spreading democracy through free and fair elections since 1989. And I never, ever thought that the Carter Center would have to monitor an election anywhere in the United States, let alone in our home state of Georgia. So I'm thankful for their work here, but, but man, I mean, to me, it is a dramatic example of how thoroughly threatening and damaging Donald Trump has been to our democracy. So, but after all that, everybody in Georgia survived the nationwide microscope of our Senate runoff election. And then Donald Trump instigated the first ever domestic attack on the United States Capitol in an attempt to disregard the will of the American people and stopping the constitutional process of officially certifying Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to the presidency and vice presidency of the United States. Trump's coup failed, and he was impeached again and deplatformed for his coup attempt. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris rightfully took their office, and I'm going to talk about that more in a bit, but first I'd like to tell you about what's going on with my family. Now, my pandemic life has been almost as crazy. Of course, my last episode was about my two-year-old, Jonathan. And we were in the hospital due to my son's inflammatory bowel disease for 40 days. We're home, and he is a lot better. But we are still slogging through it. For the first time, though, we have him on a drug that works kinda. I mean, he's the best that he's ever been. But everything about IBD is slow and frustrating. 
So we still don't know if this is going to be the answer. But as I said last episode, he's on Stellara, and so far, it is fantastic. It's one shot at home every four weeks. Now, Remicade was a monthly infusion that was inpatient in the hospital, and it took an entire day. So this is a life-changing and dramatic improvement for my wife and me. And for Jonathan, it seems to be working. But last episode, I told you it was $12,000 a dose, and I was wrong about that. One dose of Stellaro, one shot, is actually $24,000 every four weeks. That's more than $300,000 a year. And if you're a car nut like I am, that's a brand new C8 Corvette every quarter. That's a McLaren 720S every year. That's a lot of money. And on top of that, I told you I'd tell you the hospital bill. It was $290,000. Jonathan's medical bills were north of $400,000 for 2020. This means this two-year battle that we've had with Jonathan's disease so far has cost $600,000. And now with his $300,000 a year drug, I'm pretty much guaranteed to break a million dollars by this time next year. So if I still had lifetime maximums and pre-existing conditions to deal with, Jonathan's disease just would not be compatible with living here. We would be one of those families where my child's disease was just too expensive for him to be covered. I mean, I remember when companies that I interviewed with would tout their employees' health insurance policies like their maximums were a good thing, right? Hey, our insurance is great. Deductible is only 1500 bucks. Everything's in network. And by the way, we'll cover your medical expenses for the million dollars or maybe even $2 million. Isn't that great? But how that actually plays out for families like mine is that first, someone in your family is diagnosed with a expensive and confusing and frustrating disease. And then insurance companies then tell you that you or your spouse or your children have medical needs that are too damaging to their profit margins and their shareholders, so they cut you. And the rest is up to you. So if I lived in pre-Affordable Care Act America, what would I do? I'd have to leave, but where would I go? What if my kid wasn't well enough to leave? The Affordable Care Act eliminated that problem. But my wife and I are fortunate that my insurance is really good. And we, meaning Jonathan's awesome medical team, have been successful in lobbying my insurance company to pay for all these treatments. Now, a lot of IBD families do not get the same support, and they are fighting to get their kids on medications that we tried three or four or five remedies ago. Now, the imbalance of medical care and the threat of an action or bankruptcy still plagues millions of Americans. So addressing this problem is one of my most hopeful challenges for the Biden administration. So with all of my insurance needs 
it might seem wild that since my last episode, I left my job. (laughs) I used to work at the Coca-Cola company and I loved my job. But in the last quarter of 2020, Coca-Cola announced that they were looking to cut about 40% of the employees in North America due to COVID-related market issues. Now, I had just finished running a six-year project, and I was already trying to find my next greatest thing in the company, but when they offered a package that allowed me to focus on Jonathan and guaranteed that his medical bills would be covered and my insurance would stay with Coca-Cola for the next year, I jumped on it. And we met our deductible on January 5th. But I still love the Coca-Cola company. And I ran one of the coolest projects in the office. But the reason I'm telling you this is because Coca-Cola has had a relationship with my family ever since my grandfather announced that he was running for governor. And I'd like to tell you about it. When my grandfather was governor of Georgia, he would joke that a large part of his job was selling Lockheed Martin C-130s and Coca-Cola, which are two projects I just so happened to have worked on. So when my grandfather was running for governor, J. Paul Austin was the president and CEO of the Coca-Cola company. And Coca-Cola was effectively my grandfather's state department when he was governor. I mean, Austin knew everybody in business. So when my grandfather needed to meet and speak with business leaders and industry groups, a lot of times Austin would just call them up and my grandfather would meet them at the Coca-Cola headquarters. At the end of my grandfather's presidency, the president and CEO of the Coca-Cola company was Robert Goizetta. And Goizetta helped fund the Carter Presidential Library, and he's listed as a founder when it opened in 1986. And Coca-Cola Company has supported the work of the Carter Center for decades. So my two favorite Coca-Cola stories involve my family in the White House. The first day my family moved into the White House, my Uncle Chip went to the fridge in the solarium, and he saw it fully stocked with Coca-Cola and Pepsi. And he grabbed the Pepsi, and he declared it to be the last Pepsi open to this White House. And he cracked it open and he dumped it down the drain. And as soon as he left, the White House staff removed all the rest of the Pepsi from the White House and it was never a problem again. Okay, but for the second story, I actually used it in my interview for getting my full-time position at the Coca-Cola company. I was in my interview and the last question I was asked was, what is my favorite Coke moment? Now, I was, I was thrown off. I did not expect a question like that because I just got through normal interview questions like, tell us about a time when you had a disagreement with a vendor or tell us about a time when you had to rescue a project schedule and you know questions like that. And then I got this. What is your favorite Coke moment? And I kind of stared at the hiring manager because I knew that I was going to tell the story that immediately popped into my mind. And I knew it was going to be awkward. And I knew it was the best answer anybody could possibly give to this question in an interview. So, I mean, look at any Coke ad you've ever seen. And they're all about refreshing moments. The summer promotion every year is share a Coke. So they're looking for stories like that. But I have this one. So in the interview, 
they had no idea I was Jimmy Carter's grandson. I know I introduced myself on the podcast that way, but it is not how I go through my day at the office. And I was not planning on throwing out an interview, but because it's, you know, it's an awkward thing to bring up. But hey, they asked. (laughs) Here's the story. I told him, hey, so my grandfather is Jimmy Carter. And when my grandfather normalized U.S. relationships with China, he had three demands that China agreed to meet. First was that China would normalize and formalize diplomatic and trade agreements with the United States. And that's kind of the point, right? But the second was that China would allow the Bible into their country unimpeded, which they did. And the third was that Coca-Cola would be the first American company allowed into China. And they were. So, Coca-Cola China gave my grandfather an intricately carved Chinese Coke bottle to celebrate to celebrate that achievement for the Coca-Cola company. And my grandfather gave that Coke bottle to me when I told him I was interviewing for that job. So that was the story that wrapped up my interview. And one of the hiring managers just started laughing. And he pulled out his phone. He started texting people in the office. And the other guy just left. And he returned a few minutes later with a sheet out of a logbook in some exclusive club inside Disney World back when he ran the Disney account. And he had signed in in this logbook right after Jimmy Carter had signed in and left. So I looked at the logbook, looked at the page, and I saw the date was around New Year's. And I knew that my grandfather had signed in during one of our family New Year trips at Disney World. And damn if my signature wasn't just a couple spots down from his. So I got the job. And I have still never had a Pepsi. Well, yet another wild thing that happened since my last episode is that my grandfather gave me uh, a lot of stuff out of his woodworking shop. So I now have his workbench. Um, I have the tool cabinet that he made. I have a lot of his hand tools and all the wood. (laughs) He gave it to me on the condition that I tune everything up as he taught me and as he would like to see it, and that I actually use it, and that I hurry up and come get it. So my grandfather has had a woodworking shop ever since he left the White House, so like ever since 1981. He got this shop as as a gift from his staff when he left, he found out that the staff was pooling money to buy him a goodbye present and they were going to buy him a Jeep. And he let it leak that he didn't really need a Jeep, but he would like to outfit his garage into a woodworking shop. He didn't need his garage for cars anymore. So the garage became a place where he made dozens, if not hundreds of pieces. I mean, he has made everything from the toilet paper holder for his cabin in North Georgia to his own bed. His house is full of furniture that he built, and he used to make a piece for the annual Carter Center auction, and those pieces sometimes fetched a million dollars. He made a cradle for me when I was born, and both of my boys and my niece have all been in it, which I think is super cool. And uh, he has a book of a lot of his projects, and it's called The Craftsmanship of Jimmy Carter, and it's still for sale. His workbench and his cabinet are on the back cover. 
and I helped him a lot in the wood shop. Every time I was down there when he was in there, I was helping him with something or uh, getting in the way of something. <laughs> but um, one of the pieces that I helped him make, uh, uh, helped him mark and cut and photograph, was this four-poster bed that had seven-foot-long tapered octagonal posts. It was tricky. But growing up, the wood shop was my favorite part of going down to Plains. My grandfather always had a couple projects going at a time, and the wood that he used was just exquisite. And he taught me how to make and use a draw knife, and a spoke shave, and tools like that. And he taught me how to read the grain on the wood, to use a hand plane, and to use your tools, and which saws you use for which cuts that you're making. And he taught me how to correct mistakes. And one of my favorite tools in the shop was the lathe. It was just so quick. I mean, you went from throwing huge chunks of wood by knocking corners off a square piece of wood to a finished piece in, in one session. And sometimes I didn't have more than one session <laughs> if I was in planes. He used to help me make presents for my wife, Sarah, then girlfriend, you know, in that shop. One year I gave her a set of candlestick holders that I made there on that lathe. He had worked out the pattern of what he liked for the candlesticks, and he made the biggest of the three, and then I made the other two. Uh, he also taught me how to double-check my router setup because he said otherwise the router is the quickest way to ruin a woodworking project. So I went down to Plains a couple of times, and I got to at least see my grandparents across the room with you know my face mask because you know, I'm not going to be the one that gives Jimmy Carter COVID. I don't know I don't have it, but still, <laughs> not happening. But... Um, they both got both doses of their vaccine, and actually, as I'm recording this, my wife and I just got our first shots today. So, in fact, during the inauguration, Presidents Obama and Clinton and Bush decided to, uh, to do a commercial to promote the vaccine. And they asked my grandparents if they would be in the ad, and of course they agreed. You know, in the early 90s, my grandmother started a program called Every Child by Two, and that was aimed at ensuring that all American children were vaccinated against measles and mumps and rubella and polio and so forth by the time they are two years old. So we are a very pro-vaccine, pro-healthcare family. So without getting paid for it, I'm going to play my first ad now. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. So when I was in Plains, I got to visit for a while. And one of the questions my grandfather asked me was, who do I talk politics with? And I told him that it was you that I'm still working on this podcast. So I should probably go ahead and start it. 
As my high school teacher, Miss Judy Coleman, used to say, we must adjust to changing times and still hold to unchanging principles. Now, I have been working on versions of this episode ever since the last episode, but I just got overwhelmed with all the events in the United States since the election. You know, Donald Trump used every power of the presidency to launch an attack on our election, on our democracy, and even the United States Capitol, you know, the seat of our actual government, because he was literally attacking the process of peaceful transfer of power as defined by our Constitution. But that nightmare is finally and thankfully over. And I watched every minute of President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris taking their oaths of office. Democracy prevailed. And Joe Biden, the winner of the 2020 election, took the oath of office of President of the United States. And Kamala Harris became the first African-American, the first Asian-American, the first woman to be Vice President of the United States. And Kamala now holds the highest office of anybody in an interracial marriage, which I think is really cool. And this happened because we, the people of the United States, voted them in. Now, I thought the inauguration was incredibly moving. Lady Gaga and J-Lo were awesome. And I just love seeing Garth Brooks there. He is such a great guy. And a, a quick side story about Garth Brooks. Now, my grandfather is known for building houses with Habitat for Humanity. And from my experience as his grandson, a lot of people know three things about my grandfather. One, that he was president. Two, that he was a peanut farmer. And three, that he builds houses for Habitat. Now, a lot of people think that he started Habitat for Humanity, and he did not. Millard Fuller and his wife, Linda Fuller, started Habitat for Humanity in America's Georgia. And that's one town over from Plains. It's, a, it's the big town. It has Walmart. But anyway, my grandfather has an annual event with Habitat called the Jimmy Carter Work Project. And it's very visible. And he, um, one week a year, my grandfather builds houses with Habitat. And they basically construct one or two or three neighborhoods in a week. And there are a lot of repeat builders for the Jimmy Carter work project. The same people come uh, every year and Garth Brooks and his wife, Trisha Yearwood started coming to build houses with uh, the Jimmy Carter work project. And they started working on the actual builds that my dad was working on and they work. Garth, Garth said that one of his most moving projects that he and Trisha did was building houses in Haiti after the 2010 earthquake just devastated that country. And Garth and Trisha were working on the same site that my dad was working on, but there's different teams for different sites. So when they all got back to the Habitat Builders like tent hut away from the, the build where they're all trying to relax at the end of the day, um, my dad's build was the only group that actually knew that Garth Brooks was there. And they're in the middle of this earthquake-stricken Haiti. There's nothing to do. So Garth, after being exhausted from working on this build in the hot Haitian sun all day, um, grabbed an acoustic guitar and played a concert for 
everybody that was there at the Habitat built just sitting around like a campfire concert with Garth Brooks. He's just such a cool guy. You know, I was not there. You know, my dad was there. I wish that I saw that. But um, anyway, he was also really great at Joe Biden's inauguration. And then after Garth did Amazing Grace for Joe Biden, um, I was absolutely blown away by Biden's inaugural poet, Amanda Gorman. I mean, she was just one of those poets that transcends and moves people like me that aren't exactly into poetry. I mean, just listen to her start. Mr. President, Dr. Biden, Madam Vice President, Mr. Emhoff, Americans and the world. When day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? The loss we carry, a sea we must wade. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace. And the norms and notions of what just is isn't always just is. And yet the dawn is ours before we knew it. Somehow we do it. Somehow we've weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. We, the successors of a country and a time where a skinny black girl descended from slaves and raised by a single mother can dream of becoming president only to find herself reciting for one. And then I found Joe Biden's inaugural address incredibly inspiring. He called for unity as you'd expect him to do, and he reminded us that political disagreements do not have to be a blood sport. And I was so thankful to hear the President of the United States recognize the pain that America is going through with this pandemic. You know, in January, America was losing, on average, 3,300 citizens per day this pandemic. Now, I was in high school when the terrorist attacks on 9-11-2001 killed 2,977 people. And that attack shocked and changed the world. And American families are losing that many family members every day. You know, as of this recording, this pandemic has killed more than 530,000 American citizens. And for reference, Arlington Cemetery has 400,000 grave sites. So these numbers are very hard to get your head around. And I am so thankful that we now have a president that feels the gravity of this virus. He also talked about the urgency around global climate change and about restoring America's standing in the world so that American interests can be recognized as we live in this global economy. And he was passionate about protecting our democracy. Today, we celebrate the triumph, not of a candidate, but of a cause, the cause of democracy. The people, the will of the people has been heard, and the will of the people has been heeded. We've learned again that democracy is precious, democracy is fragile, and at this hour, my friends, Democracy has prevailed. 
So now, on this hallowed ground where just a few days ago, violence sought to shake the Capitol's very foundation, we come together as one nation, under God, indivisible, to carry out the peaceful transfer of power as we have for more than two centuries. He was joined on stage by President Clinton, President George W. Bush, President Obama, and Vice President Pence. Now, my grandparents were not there. This is the first inauguration that they have not attended since 1977. They watched safely from home. But they did have a conversation with President Biden the day before his inauguration. And, of course, he wished him the best. And, I mean, I assume that they would, but I learned about it officially when everybody else did. I thank my predecessors of both parties for their presence here today. I thank them from the bottom of my heart. And I know... And I know the resilience of our Constitution and the strength, the strength of our nation, as does President Carter, who I spoke with last night, who cannot be with us today, but whom we salute for his lifetime and service. Now, when I went down to Plains, I got a chance to talk to my grandfather about that phone call. And uh, my grandfather, of course, told me that he wished Joe Biden and Kamala Harris well and wished them good luck in their new administration. And he told them that they'd be praying for him. And then they talked about the urgency of uh, prison reform, which I thought was cool. Anyway, we all know that former President Donald Trump did not attend Joe Biden's inauguration. And I did not miss him there. Because the very last American principles that Donald Trump tried to break were both the integrity of our election system and the peaceful transition of power from one leader to another. You know, as I talked in my democracy episode, Donald Trump was aggressively rejecting democracy and had been challenging the integrity of our election system ever since the moment it, meaning us, rejected him. And ultimately, he turned violent with his completely false claims of voter fraud and stolen elections. He sent his supporters to launch the first ever domestic attack on the United States Capitol building. The first American uprising against the American government since the Civil War. And it resulted in the death of five Americans, making him the first president in our history impeached twice. Now, watching this made me a lot angrier than I thought it would. You know, I have grown up as Jimmy Carter's grandson. Now, my grandfather was defeated for the exact same office. He got the exact same outcome. And my grandfather immediately accepted the results and turned around and started the Carter Center to promote democracy and peace around the globe. The United States, through all of our presidents before Donald Trump, has been rock solid in their commitment to our democracy. We have fought our revolutionary war to win the right to choose our own leaders. And we have fought many, many wars to protect and spread democracy. Now, before Donald Trump, it was unquestioned, bipartisan, and occasionally extremely expensive U.S. policy to spread and protect democracy. But Carter Center's very first program, 
from Democrat Jimmy Carter and Republican Gerald Ford was aimed at promoting democracy over strongmen in Latin America. The fact is, as we know for certain from his phone call with Georgia's Secretary of State, Trump wanted me disenfranchised, and he used the power and office of the presidency to try to make that happen in the United States. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes. So what are we going to do here, folks? I only need 11,000 votes. Fellas, I need 11,000 votes. Give me a break. In any country, by definition, disenfranchisement creates two different classes of citizens. It creates the ruling class, which is the class of citizens that are allowed to choose their leaders and therefore have a say in the rules and priorities of their government. And the non-ruling class. And those are citizens that are forbidden for participating in structuring their own government. And their needs and interests are intentionally unrepresented. Now, at best, this results in a class of citizens that are specifically ignored. And at worst, you get a class of citizens that are viciously oppressed. And often, it's a mix of both. And it all amounts to a civil rights abuse. Now, the remedy to this problem is universal suffrage. According to the UN, in the past 30 years, every single new democracy has a constitutional guarantee for universal suffrage. You know, more than 100 of the nearly 120 electoral democracies in the world have a constitutional guarantee for the right of their citizens to elect their representatives and to choose the people that make up their government. So when a democracy does not start out with this guarantee, the remedy requires the haves, the people in charge of a government, to give power to the have-nots. And this is always difficult because those excluded from forming their own government were excluded on purpose. Now, fixing this problem can be generally peaceful. In our nation's history, we look at Dr. Martin Luther King and John Lewis's leadership during the Voting Rights Act in 1965. Or, it can come through violence, like the 15th Amendment. So in order for this struggle to be peaceful, the leaders in charge must fully commit to the ideas and the ideals of democracy. Now, the United States does not guarantee voting rights to every American citizen. This country was founded by giving voting rights to the states. And the states are not under any obligation to actually help their citizens vote. You know, in America, for example, Americans have the right to free speech, our First Amendment. We cherish that. We can say whatever we want about our government, about its policies and the people in it. Our government does not have the right to silence its critics. And if you were detained for peacefully protesting your government, every courthouse in America is required to let you go. You have recourse. And if you are wronged, even if you are released, if your First Amendment rights are violated, you have the right to sue the government. And you can appeal all the way to the Supreme Court, if you need to, for your right to say what you want about your government. But America does not guarantee its citizens the right to vote. It does not provide any guarantee that you can actually cast your ballot. The individual states set the rules, and there is nothing in the Constitution that prevents the states from messing with voting rights. So, because our government leaders have the ability to mess with voting rights, they 
do. And they always have. And the examples are in every time period in the history of our country. And it's almost always to keep black people from voting. Just a few examples. In Alabama entered the United States in 1819. And in their state constitution, they gave universal suffrage to all white men and nobody else. One year later, though, in 1820, not to pick on the South, New York dropped property-owning requirements for all white men, so all white men could vote. But black men still needed to own property to vote. The first voting rights amendment that's in our Constitution is the 15th Amendment. And that was ratified after the Civil War, during Reconstruction. And that stated that no American could be denied the right to vote based on the color of their skin or their past life as a slave. But there were no protections against poll taxes and literacy tests. And poll taxes were finally eliminated by the 24th Amendment in 1964. But, a lot of, but in a lot of states, black people were still systematically denied access to register until the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed. So today, while black people and other people of color can generally register to vote, States are still allowed to create voter ID laws and purge voter rolls and increase poll times and close poll stations and limit ballot access. And the only recourse Americans have to make voting easier is to elect people that want a better system using the system that doesn't want them to vote. So, in fact, we have been expanding and contracting eligible voters, our ruling class, through voting rights laws and constitutional amendments for the past 400 years. And we are now locked in yet another battle to contract the ruling class and once again eliminate voters that some politicians don't want. I mean, today, now. In Georgia, you are allowed to request an absentee ballot for any reason. Maybe you don't have reliable transportation to uh, the polling station from your house. Maybe you can't get off work in the middle of the workday on Tuesday. Maybe you can't risk standing in line for two and a half hours. Maybe it's a pandemic and you have an immunocompromised toddler. Or maybe you just want to research the candidates at home and talk to your spouse about the issues as you fill out your ballot in your own living room. I voted absentee. That's how a lot of people voted in this pandemic. Well, on March 8th, Republicans in Georgia passed a bill out of the Georgia Senate that aims to eliminate no-excuse absentee voting. Now, this was, without question, the most scrutinized election in Georgia's history, and there were 1.3 million absentee ballots cast in November. The election was recounted twice, and the vote totals were correct, and no fraud was found. This system worked. And in fact, our Secretary of State... Republican Brad Raffensperger put out a press release after the 2020 election stating that, quote, Georgia is recognized as a national leader in elections. It was the first state in the country to implement the trifecta of automatic voter registration, at least 16 days of early voting, and no excuse absentee voting. So Republican voters and our Republican Secretary of State all like no-excuse absentee voting, and Republican senators in Georgia have decided to make it harder for Georgians to vote. Now this bill is going to the House, and I am 
definitely going to be following this. Democracy won in 2020, but the fight continues, and so will I. Thank you for listening to Unchanging Principles. I love being back on this podcast. As much as the flurry of life events and nearly absolute quarantine with two small children can let me be. On Jonathan's good days, he's still a two-year-old toddler (laughs) doing two-year-old toddler stuff. And a lot of it is adorable, but not everything. Uh, We're also doing Zoom schooling. Uh, my, My oldest son, Charlie, is in second grade. And actually, these next couple weeks, his class is studying Jimmy Carter. And uh, my wife and I read the class material and decided that we needed to jump in and help. So I am happy to do it. I'm excited about it. His class is coming up with a list of questions that I'm going to answer on a Zoom meeting sometime soon. And I expect that I'll have something fun to talk about coming out of the second graders' questions. You can email me at josh at unchangingprinciples.com. And you can find me on Instagram at unchangingprinciples. Now, I know I have been super late at getting the anything going on Instagram, but I've actually done it now and I've said hi and I'm going to see if I can keep this going. Anyway, I have said a couple of times now that I want to have an episode or two about voting rights and now I'm actually going to do it. Our voting rights struggles are 130 years older than this country. So in order to figure out how we got the system we have today, we have to go all the way back to the pilgrims. And that's next. There is a peaceful solution called Peace Revolution. Now let's take back America. There's a war and we're in it. I know we can win it. So let's take back America. There was a dream, so believe it. Ready to receive it. Now let's take back.